You may be seated, and children, you are dismissed to go downstairs. You are dismissed. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Well, we have been following. Um, well, I have been following, and I've been dragging you along with me. <laughs> in reality, Sermon on the Mount. Probably one of the most beautiful sections of the Gospels. And so many people uh, from, you know, learned people who study to pastors would say that probably it is how it's composed, how it's laid out, it is one of the most beautiful sermons and teachings that Christ ever gave. And the interesting thing is, and, and I've mentioned this before, but it's always worth reminding. You see, Matthew, when he put this together, he actually didn't have a lot of time. Like, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll get it done if you read it out loud in 10 to 15 minutes. There's no way, and imagine this. Imagine this. Here you are on, on, in the Sea of Galilee, and, and you're, you're basically you know, following Jesus, and all of a sudden he walks up this, this big hill, a mount, a mountain, and as he walks up there, it probably took him a while to walk up there, because, you know, some of us who, who went, we sort of saw the area, it probably took, you know, several minutes to walk up at a minimum, depending on how far he went up, and then he taught. And Jesus wouldn't have taught for 15 minutes and said, okay, time to go. Right? He wouldn't have done that. So there's a lot of stuff missing that he would have said. I mean, doesn't Scripture say that, you know, if you tried to write everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough to actually record? And so here's Matthew trying to put something together. And you see, we live in a world where, you know, the printing press was created and then we have all these systems of, you know, coding things in scripture and in other books and libraries. And so we have really cool things like chapters and verse numbers and headings. Those aren't the techniques they used back then. They didn't have chapters. They didn't have verses. They didn't have headings for each section. They organized scripture when they recorded it in a totally different way. And it was done on purpose because the way that you organized the scripture actually helped fill in the gaps. They didn't have typewriters and computers where, you know, they could copy everything down quickly. They had to hear, try to remember, and then slowly. You know, like people who do calligraphy. Like when I tried to do calligraphy and you want to make it look nice, it's slow. Like, you know, it's really slow. And so can you imagine trying to write down an hour, two hours, three hours worth of teaching? You just couldn't. And so we've been following how Matthew has actually composed this over the last 
few messages that we've had. And today, we're actually getting to what I call the peak or the apex of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll, I'll give you another glimpse today of how Matthew did this. But he really constructed this in a very common way that they did in the ancient world. And that is, it's almost like, you know, if you ever do those ink blocks when you're a kid, you know, you get a paper, you start folding half, and then you put the ink and you fold it and then you open it up again, and it's like the same on both sides. But the center is the fold. It's exactly how they did most of scripture. You know, we're so used to saying, okay, the thesis is at the beginning, right? And then everything else follows and then the conclusion at the end, right? In the ancient world, a lot of times when they composed things, they didn't do it that way. It was actually the middle. The very, very center. If you go to Revelation, you want to know the entire story of the coming of Jesus and the battle with Satan. You go to the middle of Revelation and then you move your way out to the ends. It's the same thing. And so the Sermon on the Mount is, is actually constructed in the same way. So why is that important? Well, I think it's important because if you read through the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew went to that effort, guided by the Holy Spirit, to construct it in a way that communicated something to us, don't you think it's worth us looking into that? Because he just didn't put it together willy-nilly. Oh, I'll write this one. Yeah, that one's good too. No. There was actually some effort put into it. He probably did a lot of prayer and thought and figured, like, how do I do this to represent with the little time that I have? And look, how do I represent the entire teaching of what Jesus was trying to say that day in that sermon? And so we talked about the Beatitudes. We talked about Jesus' approach to the law in the last two sermons. And today we're going to reach the apex of that sermon the very, very top. And so you can see that, you know, I'm referring to mountains and mountain climbing. And mountains are a beautiful thing. What does El Shaddai mean? We sang that today. Anybody? El Shaddai. Anybody? Huh? All sufficient one. Anybody else? Almighty? God Almighty, Most High, yes, the Most High, Almighty. And you know, in the early days, you know what it was also considered? In some of, in some of the early conditions that, i oh, sorry, conditions, the early recordings and, and uses, God of the mountains or God of the creator of the mountains. Because mountains are so huge that only someone so mighty and so high could actually build something that beautiful. God of the mountains. And so you have this imagery and all of a sudden Jesus is going up. That, does, that is very, very, um, something very, how should I say this? Very common and very um, useful that Matthew would have known. It would have been natural to him to think of it that way. Because it, it's part of his language. It's part of how they called God. It's, it's part of what they were taught. And so today we're going to learn about what, this mountain or this climbing has to do with prayer. Because at the apex of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew puts the prayer. You've got to wonder why. 
And there's a purpose to it. And I, I like to, to use that analogy and just elaborate a little bit more, okay? So give me, give me a little bit of freedom here, creative freedom, as I, as I take this analogy. And let's think, of, let's think of climbing, okay? Mountain climbing. Because you know what? All of you, from a spiritual sense, are mountaineers. You are. You are mountain climbers. And at the end of today, if you don't understand what I'm saying, then I have failed. Okay? But at the end of today, you will understand why I call all of you mountaineers and climbers. Okay? So, what are mountaineers and climbers? Well, climbers are people, you know, they climb to Mount Everest. You know, it's, it's one of those things that's not easy to do. If you ever climbed up a hill, I remember when we were in Israel a few months ago, there was this big hill that you had to climb. And, you know, it was at, on this plateau. And a lot of people wanted to go, and I was so tired, I said, it's okay, I'll watch. <laughs> right? But I saw everybody, they were all gung-ho, and they climbed it. But you could see, they started off fast, and then it started getting slower and slower, and then they got to the top, right? And then, obviously, they didn't come back down all right away, but they were walking around, and they were having a great time, you know, at the scenery. And then they slowly came back down. But that is, that's what it's like climbing a mountain. But they had stairs. Can you imagine climbing mountains with no stairs? And people do this a lot. Um, can you bring up the picture of the youth climbing the mountain? I hope, I hope we got this. I got us a picture. Let's see if they bring it up. I, ho I hope they can bring it up. But anyway, we had, last month, the youth went, went climbing. And we, uh, we took them in, and they had to climb, and it's these walls, right? And it's like, okay, guys, go ahead. Can you imagine if we just said, go ahead? What if one falls, right? They're going to break their neck. So when you climb a mountain, whether it's Mount Everest or you're going climbing on a wall somewhere, when you climb a mountain, you've got to be prepared. You prepare yourself. And when you, it, some people, you know, you'll, you'll know this language like base camp. There we are. You prepare yourself. And so here you, here's a couple of the youth who are climbing this wall. And you can see that this wall sort of jettisons out. And they've got to figure out how to, how to get themselves up there. But one of the things that you don't see, they have helmets. And they have... They're strapped in to a rope. So before they started climbing, we had to actually make sure that everything was, was proper. We had to check that all the equipment was there, that it was put on properly, that it was tight but not too tight, before they started climbing. And that's so important. There's a preparation before you actually climb. And it's actually very true as well with us as Christians. When we climb, it's not an easy task. It is a very difficult task. And they have to climb on their own effort. And if we have to go through life on our own effort, you can imagine what it's like. Not something that we'd want to experience. I was just reading how even with the most experienced people, there can be tragedy. 
And so no longer how long you've been a Christian, you can't get complacent. You can't. And, and it happens. It is treacherous. I just read that there's this group of people, and, and there's only 500 in the world that have climbed the seven highest mountains. They're this club of, of people who are mountaineers, and there's only 500. And there was about, about a, I think, a few months ago or weeks ago, there were two people that had climbed all six and were climbing the last one, and on the way down, they died and didn't make it. How would you have thought that somebody had accomplished all the other six, but on the seventh, they didn't make it? And so we as Christians have got to think about also the parallel to our life. We can be a Christian for decades, and if we think that we can mountain climb and not think that there is still danger in mountain climbing, that we can think, oh, we've done it before, we just continue. it just becomes standard motion. We go to church, we, uh, you know, we, do the, we do prayers, and before you know it, you're going through a season of tough, tough stuff. Tough stuff. And so we are always constantly, constantly needing to be ready and prepared for everything we do. No matter how much experience we have, no matter what we go through. Now look at this. Look how important it is in the Gospels. Um, but first let's go to Psalm 121, 1-2. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Yes. In Luke 6, 12, let's see what Jesus did. One day soon afterward, Jesus went up where? On the mountain to pray. And he prayed to God all night. Verse 3, sorry, the third verse here, Matthew 14, 23 to 24. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by waves because the wind was against it. There again, Jesus went up to pray. And in Matthew 15, 29 to 31, again, Jesus going up to the mountainside with the great crowds following him. You see, the mountain was a very important aspect even in Jesus' ministry and the imagery of the mountain. It was, we talked about it was part of his ethos actually to climb a mount and go and pray. To go and be by himself. Even to this day in certain cultures around the world, Christians in certain cultures, and I I believe South Korea is one of them, where there is a multitude of Koreans every morning who get up early, early in the morning to go somewhere, and usually it's a mountaintop, to pray before they go to work. Can you imagine how early you'd have to get up every morning? That takes discipline. That takes discipline. 
And Jesus is our greatest example. Our greatest example. Can you flash up the uh, triangular-looking image? I'm going to show you a lot of my notes today just because I think it's important that we understand. So this is sort of a Bible study slash sermon, but it's very important that we understand. I want to show you some of my notes. Um, and you can start to see here down at the very bottom, Matthew 5.1 and Matthew 8.1. You see, the actual Sermon on the Mount starts at the beginning of the next chapter. Sometimes they didn't get that right, but that's okay. That was a few hundred years ago they developed the system. Um, and the system is actually not what they used to create the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. But you can see there's an ascending and a descending, and that there's scripture on either side, like the salt and light in Matthew 13, 16, is actually a parallel that needs to be considered with Matthew 7, 15 to 20. And if you just read things linearly and don't consider how the structure of the Sermon Mount is created, you would lose that. You would never get that. The importance of those two connecting. The other thing is that it's structured that it escalates. It starts with the Beatitudes and escalates up to the Lord's Prayer as we know it. Let me show it to you another way because this might be confused. Can you show the chart that has, that has climbing up the mountain and has the Beatitudes in it? It's a chart. It's the first chart I showed. That's the one right here. So on the right side, it's getting cut, cut off, but on the right side is climbing down the mount. This one is climbing up the mountain. You can start to see, look, and the crowds up on the mountain, right, went up on the mountain. On the other sides... It says the crowds came down from the mountain. So at the very beginning, Matthew is very specific. He uses the same words. See, that's how they structured things back then. They put pieces together and they use the same words to try and bring things together, the same concepts to bring things together in structure. And then you start to see here, and I'm not going to get into a lot of this because that section on the right side is going to be for a future sermon. But you can see here the fruit of the ethos. Salt and light, a tree and its fruit. Talking about very similar things. Very similar things. So this is what I'm going to dig into today. And there's three questions I have that need to be answered in order for you to understand whether you're mountaineers or not. What gets you to the top? What gets you to the top of the mountain? Secondly, why is it important? Why is it important to get to the top of the mountain? And thirdly, why is the Lord's Prayer the apex of the mountain for Matthew's structure of the Sermon on the Mount? Why? Are you ready? All right, let's start. Luke 11, 1 to 4. Luke 11, 1 to 4. Now, we're going to start here, and this is, this is an interesting piece of scripture because it's, it's talking about the Lord's Prayer. I've already given away that the peak, the apex of the structure that Matthew put here for the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. But let's go to Luke because we get a little bit of a glimpse of what's going on. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, okay, so here's Jesus. He's praying, right? So he's praying. And he's probably prayed with the disciples many times. 
And the disciples have heard him pray. And so one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now you've got to understand, that question is very odd. Teach us to pray. You see, the disciples grew up in Jewish communities. What happens when you're three or four years old in a Jewish community? You go to school. And between three, four years old till you're about ten, you're going to school. You're going to school to learn about God. And you're taught one-on-one with a teacher, maybe a small little group of you. And as you get older and you start to get to ten, you start to you get, get taught how to pray. Go to the synagogue. Start reading the scriptures. Because at about 12 to 14 in the, in the Jewish culture is when people actually thought that you started to know the difference between right and wrong. That you actually had a conscious understanding of what it was. And so the bar mitzvah was a celebration to say, now you're an adult because you can discern, know from in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil what is good and what is evil. And you get a glimpse of this in Exodus when the people of Israel, because they sinned, remember they were supposed to enter the promised land and they couldn't? And, and God said, well, out of the 12 spies, two of them will see, and who else? The young ones, right? So it's a, it's a weird question. You guys are adults. You've been praying for decades. Why would you have to ask Jesus, teach us to pray? Obviously, Jesus was praying in a way that was so different from what they had been taught. They had been probably praying in a certain way, and here comes along Jesus, and he's praying completely differently. And they're going, we've never heard this. Just like his teachings. We've never heard anybody, anybody teach like this with such authority. Well, we've never heard anybody pray like this. Like, this isn't how we were taught to pray. That's what's going on here. In this question, there is conflict. My entire life, I've been told to pray like this from my teachers, my parents, the synagogue leaders, everybody, and I hear Jesus, and he doesn't pray anything like that. And look at Jesus. Like, do you think Jesus' prayers are 10 seconds? No. But look what's recorded here. Obviously, Jesus' prayers are a lot longer. But let's look at what's recorded here. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now Jesus' prayers were a lot longer but Luke in essence is trying to capture what is so different about Jesus' prayer. Do you see that? It's not that Jesus praise this prayer all the time repeatedly in fact that is something that he teaches against 
So Luke is recording something special about Jesus' prayers that is so different than anything that they've ever done or they hear from anybody in church. Their church at the time. And this is very odd. Like we always read through it, but we never stop and think, like, this is really odd. And this wouldn't have been just the only thing that Jesus prayed. And we get a glimpse of this in Luke in Luke 18, verse 10. And this, this gives us a little bit of foreshadowing of what Jesus is trying to get at. Two men went out to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Well, Luke's buddy, Matthew, is a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Boy, I'm glad I'm not like the people in this world. Wow. I am so glad I'm not woke. I am so glad I am not like those people who try to shut everybody up. I am so glad I don't fall into that trap. I'm not one of those guys. I don't steal, I don't swear, and every time I have a meal I pray, thank you God for making me like this. You know, that's, that's what's going on with the Pharisee, right? I come to a suit every week at church. I look good. Right? That's what's going on. And then there's this tax collector in Jesus. But the tax collector, standing from afar, wouldn't even lift his eyes, but just beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just a few words. Just a few words. And so now, I think we're starting to get a little bit of insight into what Matthew is trying to do. If we can go to the next table, and you see, as we climb the Sermon on the Mount, there's a section that starts in chapter 6, verse 1. And I call it the Father who sees in secret. And you'll see that it goes from 6-1 to 6-6, and then it jumps to 6-16. Because you're at the crest, but not the peak of the mountain. And so you're near the crest. And you can see how these two are interrelated. I put headings here because that's what we're used to. But the first one is, given secret... The second one is pray in secret, and the third one is fast in secret. And so what's the scripture saying here? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And get this, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrite. Again, praying in secret. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the secret. They love to stand 
out loud, be loud, be seen, be noticed. I tell you, if you're like that, if you want to be noticed, you don't understand what prayer is. And look what it says. I highlight it. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. And look, jump to the other side, right? Because there's something in between that you're going to see. Fasting in secret. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. You see that repeated of words? The structure is there. Matthew is giving us a hint. He is saying that you're near the crest of the mountain. You're almost at the peak, but surrounding the crest, going down one side and coming up the other side, I'm trying to make a point. And my point is here, just like we read with a tax collector, is don't be like the hypocrites. And usually, predominantly, the hypocrites are the ones that have been in church the longest. Not the new ones. Not the new ones. That's where it becomes so dangerous for us who've been in church for so long. We just go through the motions. And we're so proud of the fact that we've been in church for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. You don't realize, like in Revelation, have we lost our first love. And then we start to behave and act like we know better and start to judge people. You know, you know I, I, I sometimes have to catch myself in this trap. You know, start to get very critical. Oh, here comes the hypocrite. You know, get that little hypocrite's just ready to come out, you know? Judging. Thinking that I know better than others. You know, wanting to be noticed. Ah, I'm good, ain't I? It's so dangerous. So dangerous. And it's for us that have been in church the longest that this is the most dangerous. Very dangerous for us. Not just complacency, but this. When we think we're better than others. And here we go. The next graph. The final one. This is the apex. At the very top of this structure, Matthew has composed the Sermon on the Mount to come to this point in time. This is the prayer that when asked, teach us how to pray, that Jesus taught the disciples. And so Jesus must have also taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus fed the thousands many times. Even he said, don't you remember when I fed these thousands and those thousands? You know, sometimes, on a side note, sometimes people tell me, well, you know, Jesus contradicts himself or the Bible contradicts, you know, and one said 3,000. I said, isn't it possible that Jesus taught the same thing multiple times? I mean, if I was moving around, I want to make sure that if it's important in Galilee, it's going to be important in Jerusalem. I'm going to make the same thing. It might, I might change it up a little bit, you know, but... Is there anything wrong with that? No. So here's Jesus teaching this prayer very differently. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The interesting thing about 
the prayer is it points to the Father. To the Father. It points to the Father. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 5, 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That is why Jesus puts our Father right up there. And we as Christians, yes, we're Christians. Yes, we follow Jesus. He is our Lord. But he came to allow us to have a relationship with the Father once again and to understand the Father's will in our lives. Yes, you can understand what the Father's will is in your life. The Bible says you can, and we're going to read it here today. Let's go back to the prayer again. It was on the screen. Then it says, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, El Shaddai. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In substance, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are the same. They are God. But only one of them is the Godhead. Jesus proclaimed that the Father is greater than I, he said. It is no wonder that Jesus is pointing us to not forget the Father. Give us our daily bread. It was interesting, I was talking to a sister about this. You know, a lot of people, oh, I was watching on TV, I'm not going to name the preacher, but, oh, if you give $1,000 now, you're going to get 10 times back. That's up for God to decide, not you. Because God might not decide that that's for me. God can do that, and he does do that. But not because I've designed the mechanics of giving to do that to force his hand. That's not how God works. The next thing, and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven others, our, our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And look at what he does with verse 614. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. You want to be forgiven? You can't hold a grudge. You've got to forgive others. He's like, you can't have your cake and eat it too, you know. You have to forgive if you want to be forgiven by your Heavenly Father. 
And this is the prayer that Matthew leaves at the very end. See, this is the prayer that is so different than anything that anybody... You can say, if the, if the disciples had to ask Jesus, teach us how to pray, can you imagine all the people on that mount sitting down? They wouldn't have known how to pray either. They would have had no idea. But here is the difference. Jesus is starting to tell them, pretty soon, you're going to be able to pray this. Pretty soon, you're going to be able to know what the Father's will is. Why? John 14. I didn't write down the verse, so you're going to have to... Hopefully they wrote down the verse. I, I can't remember. Is it 14? Yeah, it's 1420. Good, thank you. In that day you will know that I am in the Father. See, Jesus, I am in the Father. We're talking about the day when the Spirit comes. I am in the Father and you will be in me. You see that? When we surrender to Christ, our spirit is dead, right? And then the Holy Spirit that was there before the fall of Adam and Eve comes and lives within us. We become alive. We become alive. And then it goes on to say, and you in me and I in you. Jesus and the Father are connected and we are now connected to Christ and now Christ creates the connection with the Father through Christ. That is what Jesus does. And so now when we pray the prayer, we are praying the prayer as if we have a relationship with the Father. Not some distant God who has commandments to follow. 613 of them that we have to memorize. Rituals. They were never the central aspect of it. But that's what the church in the Old Testament made of it. The central aspect of everything about knowing about God. But here's the crux. Here's the crux. Romans 12.2. One of my favorite verses. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our minds have been constructed, influenced, biased by everything we, we interact with. TV, social media, everything. And they need transformation. That by the testing, because unless your mind is transformed, unless your thinking and way of believing and all the things in your mind doesn't change, you cannot do this. Afterwards, as your mind gets transformed and renewed, then you can start testing and discerning the will of God. But one has to happen before the other happens. That process of transformation and renewal, you'll never know what God wants in your life. There'll be some distant thing out there. The Spirit comes into your life and then you go through ongoing, ongoing 
not just the young people who come to the Lord. I don't mean young people in terms of age. I mean young in terms of your relationship with the Lord. To the people who've been here for decades, and this is the problem, is sometimes we think that we don't need to continue to go through renewal and transformation. We need to be constantly be transformed. Constantly. And that's how we begin to learn and discern the will of God. Because the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Isn't it? Let's read, let's read more from Romans. I want, to read the, I want to read more because there is so much here. So much here. Give me a second. Here we go. I appeal to you, Romans 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul is saying, please live a godly life. Please. Which is a form of spiritual worship, right? What does he say? We just read, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Look what he goes on to say. For by grace given to me, verse 3, I say to everyone among you not to think of themselves more highly than he ought to think. Like the hypocrites, right? But to think with sober judgment. Now wait on, wait here, wait here. Each according to the measure of faith that God has. Assigned. So faith isn't something that you have, that by your own effort or by your own piety or by your own longevity. Yes, we have to choose to seek God and believe, just like the man, you know, when, when his his son was being, throwing himself into the fire and Jesus says, do you have faith? You know what he did? He recognized, I have faith, but I don't have enough. Right? Because he went to the author of faith. That is what our job, our job is to realize how poor in spirit we are. And then go to God and said, increase my faith, Lord, because he is the provider, right? He provides us with everything we need. And it is according to the measure of faith that God has assigned us. We are ready for something, for works, to serve God, he will assign that faith to us. You have a calling. You know, sometimes people get, you know, nervous. You know, I really want to work with children or I really want to work with street people. And man, I can tell you, it's not easy. I had the calling to go and work with street people. A lot of you knew I used to be at Logos and then went downtown for about eight years. And the first day that I was working, I was walking that, Helen and I were walking down that aisle, and we're, and you, know, we're, you know, we're feeding people, we're talking to them, and man, I was nervous. These people were looking at us because we were newbies, and they're like, mm, and I'm like, what am I doing here? 
And in that first year, I got pushed against the wall, I got spat on, I got sworn at. But what did I have to do? If the calling was real, and I believe that that calling was real, then I have to take steps, little steps of faith. And each night that I would go, God would assign more faith. And as I trusted him, he would assign more faith. To the point that it became natural to me. The fear was gone. The nervousness was gone. And I began to learn what to say to them. Not because I got comfortable with them and knowing them. Because I would know what to say. It's how God works with us. You know, and you look at, you look at the, the prayer. It's so beautiful. I'm jumping ahead here. Give, hold that thought. Hold that thought. I want to jump to it. Hold that thought. But in order for me to have gotten to the point where I did and I felt comfortable and I could speak to Chuck. Some of you know who I talk about. I talk about Chuck several times. Right? Like who would ever approach Chuck? Chuck was a drug dealer, a pimp, was locked up, and he was put on, there's a list that the Toronto police put up as the most dangerous offenders walking around in Toronto. He was on there. I went on the web. There's Chuck. And he comes every night to be with us. And God did a beautiful thing with Chuck. It took years, but God did a beautiful thing with Chuck. Chuck accepted the Lord. He died shortly after of AIDS because of the lifestyle he had. But he loved the Lord, and you could tell it. And you know what he did as his bedside? He was inviting people in. You know, I went to, you know, what do you call those places where you're going to die and they're trying to make you as comfortable as possible? Hospice? So I went to visit him at one of these hospices and... Uh, and, and, we're, and, he's, and he, after we were talking for a while, because, you know, I, I love the guy. Like, here's the guy that spit on me and complained and pushed me around. And now, I'm there by his bedside. And he's like thanking God and saying God had to crush me to save me. And I'm here fellowshipping with that. go, hey guys, by the way, um, I have another appointment. And I said, really? Whoa, you're busy. He goes, yeah, yeah, there's another guy. I think it was another pimp. He's coming over to see me and I'm going to tell him about God. And he had his Bible there. You see, we have to climb the mountain. And we have to climb many mountains in our life. And here's what Matthew has given us to climb the mountain. Are you ready? Let's climb the mountain. All right, can we go to the next? Like, if I've done this right, this should work. <laughs> can we go to the next block, which is actually a zoom up of climbing up the mountain with the Beatitudes? Can you bring it up, please? 
Yes. So remember, this is the beginning, 5-1. The crowds, he's going up the mountain. What's the first thing? We spent quite a few sermons on the Beatitudes. They're a triad of three and three and three, remember? That is the foundation of our ethos. It is. The foundation of our ethos. The Beatitudes. Are you poor in spirit? Are you meek? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you understand, merc- do you understand being mer- what it is to be merciful? To be a peacemaker, to be pure in heart. Do you understand that if you do all those things, you're going to be persecuted? Do you understand that if you are the nice guy, that they're, you're going to be taken advantage of? Do you understand that being like this isn't popular? And standing up for Christ in a world that doesn't want to hear about Christ is not not popular at all. And so this is where you start to climb. You start to climb with the Beatitudes. Just like the mountain climber has to put on the equipment. If you don't start with the Beatitudes, you're not going to get the next section. If you don't understand the Beatitudes... The next verses that come up are going to be totally, totally weird to you and they're going to make no sense. But if you understand the Beatitudes, what's coming up next starts to make more and more sense. Because the Beatitudes were totally radical in that day and age to the population that was listening to this. And it's totally unusual even in this world. And then he goes on to say after the Beatitudes, that's how you're the salt and light of this world. You can't be the salt and light. You can't be different. That's why you're called ambassadors. Even part of the Bible calls you aliens. You know, like those weird aliens on movies like Star Trek and stuff like that and Star Wars. Because of the way you behave, that's what people think you're like. You know, I've been telling the youth that a lot. He goes, you know, guys, if you're Christian and going to high school... You're going to be weird. You're going to be made fun of. Because you don't swear, you don't go and smoke up, you don't go and do any of those things that in your heart you feel is wrong. So people are going to say, what's wrong with you, man? And guess what? That's okay. That's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing, right? It's a good thing. He knows. It's okay to be weird. Let's go to the next one. You see, now that you've put on the Beatitudes, you put on the equipment, now you're going to understand the next section. Now you're ready to climb. So Jesus is starting to say, okay, you guys, you guys are all about the law, right? Hopefully it'll come up soon. If not, I'll guide you guys through it. It's Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17 to 20. This is where Jesus 
starts to say, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And he's not saying, I've come to actually pat him on the back and say, good job, you followed all 613 laws. That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying that there are gaps. They need to be filled. These laws that you follow have many gaps. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. He's not talking about that there's a priority from 613, like from 1 to 613 at the bottom, ones at the bottom are the least of these. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the ones that are outside the 613 that people keep forgetting that are found in Scripture, but because you want to follow a certain set of rules, you just don't understand the other aspects of what God is trying to do. Look at verse 20 of chapter 5. Did it come up yet? No, it hasn't come up yet. It's okay. Verse 20 of chapter 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you've got to understand, you've got to exceed... The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You've got to understand that people listening to this are going to say, what? The scribes are the people who know how to read and write, and they're the ones that write Scripture. You're telling me that they, know, that they read Scripture all day, write it. They know it better than anybody else, and you're saying, I have to be more righteous than them? How is that possible? I don't have a Bible. Back then, they didn't have Bibles, guys. You guys have Bibles on your phones, on your iPads, in your hands, you know, the book? The 400-year-old invention still works. They didn't have that. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. They didn't have that for 1,500 years after Christ came to this earth. And even when the printing press was, was finally available, even books were still expensive and only the rich could afford them. So unless you could afford to hire somebody like a scribe to write out a Bible for you, probably take a couple of years but once they're finished two years salary you have to be more righteous than them there we go now the beatitudes changes the way you think because it's not about laws it's about the heart. It's about recognizing how poor I am. I don't know if you guys remember, remember I brought up two people and I stood them up here and I said, okay, you swore. And then I said to the other person, you've murdered five people, take one centimeter forward. And then I walked all the way to the other side of the stage and I said, okay, let's say God's righteousness is way over here and it's far beyond, it's probably from here to eternity. No, it is from here to eternity. But I just imagine it's way over here. I can't tell the difference between the one who swore and the one who killed five people. That's what poor in spirit means. It means that my sin is terrible and I shouldn't be comparing it to anybody else's and saying their sin is worse than mine because we're all sinners. As soon as you start to think that way, you start to realize, wait a minute, there's no law for that. There's no one of the 613 that apply to that way of thinking. 
Then you, there, we start talking about, you have heard it says, no, Jesus, okay, you're ready to climb the mountain. Okay. You have heard it said that if you murder, right, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Right? Makes sense. Hey, Ten Commandments. But I say to you, what did you say? But I say to you, if you are angry, you are liable to judgment. What? Woo! Wait a minute. The Beatitudes. If you truly, truly understand what it means to be poor in spirit, that starts to make sense. And Jesus says, this isn't written, people of the Old Testament. And guess what? We have a lot of people in the church that don't understand this because they don't think like the the Beatitudes are asking us to think. Let's go to the next one. Jesus keeps going. You see that? I say to you. Another pattern. I say to you. Let's... It gets cut off a bit. It says here about adultery. Let me read it off to you. I'll read it off to you. You guys can follow it in your... I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery. It's not just the person who's done the act. Oh, who was that president? What's that? Clinton. Clinton. Hey, guys, I, I didn't do it. Yeah, I did nothing wrong. You see, my line is over there. I did not cross that line. We did everything up until then, but we didn't cross that line. I've heard that many times, even from pastors. Well, until you actually cross that line of intercourse, it's really... No! The Beatitudes. What do the Beatitudes say? That How my heart should be. That tells me that I have to knock it up a level. Now you're climbing the mountain. Now you're starting to understand. It's way beyond what you think, people of the Old Testament. It's way beyond what you think, people of the New Testament, when you think it's just about rules. Some rules apply to me and some don't. My, the stuff I do isn't as bad as the stuff that the other guy does. Boy, I'm, not, I'm glad I'm like the people downtown Toronto. Talking to more of the people in this saga. I never go to downtown Toronto. I, I know people in this saga have never been to. How many of you have been to downtown Toronto? How many of you have never been to downtown Toronto? Come on, be admitted. How many of you have never gone to downtown Toronto? Okay, I see a few little hands. All right. I say, I never go downtown. Now, if you, go downtown, if you don't want to go downtown because of traffic, I don't blame you. But some people don't go downtown because they own Sin City. Jesus is saying, you've got to knock it up a notch. If you want to climb the mountain, if you want to live like I want you to live, you've got to climb that mountain. And climbing that mountain means taking it up a level. Because everything has to be taken it up a level. He then talks about divorce. He then talks about you know, you heard it say an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and he says if somebody does evil to you, what are you supposed to do back? Yeah. Take it up a level. And guess what? Once you've taken it up to that level, go the next step. Next time. They slap you on the face, 
turn the other cheek, let him slap you on the face, and then invite him for lunch. Keep climbing. Keep going. You got to keep climbing. It doesn't stop. Jesus is trying to teach these people on this mountainside that if you live by rules, you're never going to get it. And guess what? What you do today that you're so proud of isn't enough. You got to take it up a notch. And then when you feel comfortable, get uncomfortable. Take it up a notch. Because when you climb, it's not easy. But guess what? What did we read? As the faith is assigned to you, because as you climb, as you believe, as you behave and become like the Beatitudes call you to be, you will be able to climb. Because he will assign you faith, and you will have the strength. But if you don't take the step, and if we don't live that way, we cannot understand what Jesus is trying to say. And you can know the Bible inside and out, word for word, have it memorized, like the scribes. It's no good. Because you're just living a static life. You've got to keep growing. You got to keep climbing. You got to keep doing better than what you did last year. It's not about standing still. It's about how can I take it up a notch? What part of my life do I need to take up a notch? Remember? Testing and discerning. Well, what areas of my life, Lord, do I need to take it up a notch? The Lord will show you. Because the Beatitudes is the beginning of the transformation of your mind. Meditate on what each one of those beatitudes is. That's your equipment. And as you climb, Jesus keeps saying, I say to you, I say to you, I say to you. Do you see what Matthew is doing? Matthew is teaching you what it means to actually climb, to elevate ourselves beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. He keeps saying that. He repeated, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You see, as you climb, God gets bigger because he assigns you more faith and we become smaller. Do you see that? It's like Paul, right? He wanted God to grow in him and to him be smaller in his life. How did he do that? He kept going. God was put in prison, stoned, like, think it, but he kept going. Where did he get the strength? It was assigned to him because he kept going. How many of you guys know who John Bunyan is? Wrote the pilgrim, yeah? Okay. A little quote from him. He that is down needs fear, no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble, ever shall have God be his guide. Cute little poem, eh? You see, when you start living that way and you get to the, to the Lord's Prayer, 
you start seeing the Lord's Prayer in a whole new light. See, you, don't, you stop praying about me. Right? Here's a quote. The best view comes after the hardest climb. Let me repeat it. The best view comes after the hardest climb. You see, when you reach the top, think about reaching the top of a hill, just like the people who went to Israel or you've ever climbed a high area. When you get to the top, can you, you, just, you just look over what you see. You see so much more, don't you? It's like when you were down at the bottom, you couldn't see what you saw, but when you got to the top of that mountain, you could see far and wide and here's the neat thing. Actually, this came up yesterday too. We were having fellowship. When you get to the top of the mountain, you can look back at where you climbed from and you're going, wow. Yeah, I made it up this high. But when you're in that point trying to climb, just like you know the youth when they were trying to climb that part that's coming up and going against you, that must have felt so hard. So hard. You see, when you start to live the life of the Beatitudes, you start to understand what Jesus said, but I say to you. And you start to look at prayer in a very different way. Completely different way. Hudson Taylor, a missionary. Some of you may know. Look at his attitude. You tell me if he doesn't understand what the Beatitudes is. And you see, yeah. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. So some of you who go to university, especially if you're in the social sciences side of things, you're being told that these missionaries are actually doing a bad thing. Well, Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. And guess what? He wasn't there to try and make Westerners out of them. He actually, there was another one called Javier, who went to India and Hudson Taylor to China and had such an impact. He actually was so fascinated with the culture that he immersed himself in the culture and dressed the way they did. He wasn't there to try and change their culture. Don't, don't listen to what people are saying, professors are saying. You should tell the professors to actually read history. He was there to give him the truth of, of freedom from sin and bondage. And so, here's a, a guy who gave up everything to be a missionary to tell, give people the truth. Listen, listen to him. You tell me he doesn't understand the Beatitudes. Hudson Taylor was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, Austria, Australia. The moderator of the service introduced the missionary in eloquent and glowing terms. He told the large congregation all that Taylor had accomplished in China, and then presented him as our illustrious guest. Taylor stood up quietly for a moment and then opened his message by saying, Dear friends, I am a little servant of an illustrious 
master. He was climbing mountains and realizing that God was getting bigger and he was becoming smaller. And that is what happens when we climb mountains. Can we go back to the table with the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard with many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then when you read that, if you read that through the lens of the Beatitudes, it's all about focusing on the Father and glorifying Him. You know, a lot of preachers, you know, quote Jesus, that if you say anything in my name, I will give it to you. But what they forget is that it has to glorify God. Read it. it. says it twice. If you ask something that's not going to glorify God, and then, he, and then Jesus in that section of the scripture says, if you do the works that I do, in other words, if you live the way I live, if you understand the commandments the way I, I, I understand them, if you understand the Beatitudes, that changes how you ask, how you relate to God in prayer, how you, everything. And you see, this is now the peak. This is the most important aspect. Why? Because as you climb the mountain, you learn how big God is and how small you are, and that begins to create a real relationship with God. And that is what Matthew is trying to summarize for us. That the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is trying to help us understand that it's not by rules or by longevity or by title or by role. It is by how we live. And we become smaller and he becomes greater. And so now when you look at this prayer, this prayer that was unusual to the disciples was going to be unusual to this entire crowd. But as they understood what Jesus was saying, when he got here, they started getting a glimpse of, okay, I see where he's coming from. And that's why they were so astonished many times. The purpose of prayer is not to align God to us, but for us to align ourselves under God. You see, God already knows what, you're, what you need. He already knows what you're going to ask. He knows what's going to happen. It's like a line. I've, I've used this example so many times. Your, your life is like a line, and he sees every moment from beginning to end. And your children and your children's children at the same time. Time is irrelevant to God. He knows what you're going to ask. He knows what you're going to say. And he's trying to work in you to try and align you to where he's at. And that's why Jesus points to the Father right away. That's what we got. We, we got to point 
to the perspective of the Father. Because that's what Jesus did, and that's what he wants us to do. And only by climbing mountains with the right tools will we learn and understand. And then prayer becomes something totally different, not something that I have to do, but something that I need to do. And I stop. It's not that I don't start asking God for things. Jesus taught us that we should ask God for things. But what we ask for changes, you know? Completely changes. Completely changes. That's why Matthew put the prayer at the top. Because praying is about building a relationship with God, but you can't really build that relationship with God unless your mind is transformed, unless you've been renewed on an ongoing basis, and you're living a life like the Beatitudes teach, and you're taking everything up a level, up a level every year. What gets you to the top? Focusing on the Father and Jesus' teachings, right? Why is it important? Well, man, if, if, if God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, if he did all that for us, shouldn't we do it? He shouldn't even have to ask. We should jump right into it. And why is the Lord's Prayer the apex? Because when you start to understand prayer and the Lord's Prayer in that way, you start to realize, have I been transformed? Do I see my prayer relationship with God differently? Because if my prayer relationship with God isn't there, I haven't climbed a mountain. And I'm not saying that you should follow one person's way of praying versus another. I don't pray like most. See, I pray in snippets throughout the day. That's the way I do it. I was, I was reading a, a, uh, about the life of a pastor, I can't remember his name, um, in the States, Chicago or something, anyway, doesn't matter. And he always struggled in church because everybody says, you don't pray and you should pray like this or you should pray like that. And he struggled. For years. Because the scribes and Pharisees were telling him, this is the way you got to do it. And finally, one day broken saying, God, I want to have a prayer life with you. And God said, go for a walk. He went for a walk. Started talking to God. He goes, is this praying? And God said, yes. You just pray differently than everybody else. Go for long walks. So he's walking every day, talking to God. He was different than everybody else. And then he started realizing, and God called on his life to say, I'm calling you to bring people that have been alienated by the church because they're always told how they should behave. I'm not saying that if somebody sins, we shouldn't, because I just talked about that in the last sermon, that the evildoers that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 isn't the ones out there. 
Remember what he said in chapter, chapter 5? He says, I'm not talking, when you think, when he said like this, you think I'm talking about evildoers? He goes, I'm not judging those outside. That's for God to judge. When I talk about evildoers, I'm talking about the ones inside the church. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that we need to hold ourselves to a standard of not imposing it on others because we think this is how it should be. I mean, I can give a testimony, a witness, this is how God works with me. Does that resonate with you, yes or no? And then let God guide it, because it might be so totally different. And so he started a church for people who were alienated by the prayer groups that forced people to pray a certain way. And in two, three years, it grew into the thousands. People who stopped going to church. Can you imagine that? We did that as a church. We did that as a church. Because you see, prayer isn't about the mechanics. Prayer is about the heart relationship. Right? The Beatitudes. Right? And you might be different than me. I might be quieter than you. Like, I'm, I'm way quieter than, than my brother over here. Way, way quieter. And it's okay for him to, to you know, like, he's got a loud voice. Like, he'd be great, you know, if, we, if, if they didn't have speakers at a hockey game, they needed an announcer, he could just speak and announce. It just, just carries. But I've never heard him tell me, Julie, you have to pray like I do. You're too quiet. Never. That's just one example. Let us stand. Let us stand. How many of you want to be mountain climbers? Huh? Put up your hand. Okay. I did my job today. Amen. Hey, now my job today wasn't my own effort. You see, when a preacher comes here, I've already gone through this message first. It isn't my own. I'm not the author to this message. It was just told to me first. And now I'm just sharing it with you. That's all. I'm the speaker, just like the ones down here. That's it. And I was confident that you were going to get it. And you know why? Because it isn't my message. If it was my message, then I'd be nervous. Because I know this God who gave this message to us and wants you to be mountain climbers, it's really Him who is going to touch your hearts. Not me. I think we need to worship a little. You know in your hearts where you are with your prayer life. The prayer life is the apex. Where is your prayer life? Because if it's not there, you got to start looking at the Beatitudes, the equipment you use. 
And I'm not talking about praying in one way or another. It's how you relate to God. Does your heart desire to relate to God? I don't care if it's at the keyboard where you work, you know, whether you're hammering something against a piece of wood. You can be praying at that time. Or it's in a closet in secret. But I'll leave you with one last quote. From what God has done to you and to your life, when he has made you climb mountains, those memories, the memories that are made on mountaintops, they last forever. And you need to take those moments as a reminder of what God can continue to do again and again. And we should give him praise. Let's praise him. Let's love him. Let's ask him from our hearts that we want to be mountain climbers. We want to be transformed. Because that happens when we praise him. We start to align ourselves to the Father's will. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.